Hello, Ranchers. This is John, your SNIC. This is going to be a joint podcast um, with David Johnson of Skeptics and Seekers. Um, and also, it will be on Secular Soup. Um, Amy with a Y from Secular Soup asked us both to come onto her platform and just talk about what's going on today and, and racism and what have you, which is what we did. Um, it's going to show up on Secular Soup podcast, The Skeptics and Seekers, as well as Angry Black Rant Z. I have to give Amy with a Y and Secular Soup a shout out here because they did what we want allies to do. Uh, they gave up their platform to people of color and let them do what they needed to do and bowed out of it. Um, so again, thank you, Secular Soup, uh, for, for listening to us and giving us this platform. We was the very first people to die for this red, white, and blue. Yeah, that's right. It was a soul brother. Christmas addicts at the motherfucking Boston Massacre. We've been dying for this country from the very get. Hoping one day they'd give us our rightful place. All they'd give us was a foot up our black asses. Fuck that. I say, if you say they owe us, we built this bitch. I love you, my knuckers. Welcome to Angry Black Rand. thing that has happened in this nation since slavery. You're in a universe and two plus two equals four. Two plus two only equals four if you accept that two plus two equals four. If there's any atheists in the house, let me say you stupid motherfuckers. I don't care what God you believe in, you gotta be a special kind of retarded to be too stupid to make up a God if there wasn't one. And then all of a sudden, then we were evolved from monkeys. Why we still got monkeys? It's not... Nigga, hush. So, I mean, it, it sounds like you're using Tin Can Express, but <laughs> you can be heard loudly. Uh, so you, <laughs> that's, that's better than having a nice, clear signal that's too low. Um... So, uh, tell me, who, who the heck are you? Uh, this is our first time meeting. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, I'm John Livingston. I'm one of the hosts of Angry Black Rant podcast. Ang- Angry Black who? The Ang- Angry Black Rant. 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 Okay, yes. all right. All right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, words. Uh, uh, Angry Black Rant, all right. Uh, do, do I need to ask what this podcast was about? Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> kind of, it's kind of uh, self-explanatory, but yeah, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no subtlety in the name. I don't. <laughs> but, well, I uh, I'm David. I don't know if you've heard of me. I am the David Johnson, Ooh, the, the one of the many one, David yeah, Johnson. Just the, the one and only. Uh, you'll see, like. <laughs> pages of David Johnson's pretty much every phone book in the country. 
Um, but I'm the one that uh, hosts Skeptics and Seekers. It is a Christian atheist discussion slash debate podcast, and I am the skeptic. Ah, cool. I actually, um, once Amy with a Y put this together, I had to scramble and listen to Secular Soup for the first time ever. And I listened to your last episode on uh, Skeptics and Seekers as well. So, uh, did you? Did, was it, uh, did I have the one on race up at the time? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I'm actually, uh, I've got about five minutes left in it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like the way, I like the way you skeptic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, well, good. I'm not sure if it's uh, all right to use that as a verb. But, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it myself since, uh, since the ice has been broken on it. So let me, let me just uh, real talk here. When I realized, okay, this is uh, skeptical soup. Uh, I've been so busy this week, and she said, look, it's, it's the format is whatever uh, you want it to be. And so I took that as an opportunity to not listen to any episodes of Schedule Soup. So I actually don't know if uh, what I'm going to do fits in or not, but I'm taking her at her word. What we say goes, because she's gone, and we have a mic. So let's do things with a mic that might make her whinge. Uh, I don't know what will make her whinge exactly, but uh, it's my effort to try. So that said, John... You're clearly a, a black person who uh, who needs to rant. Uh, do I do I have that much right about you? Pretty much, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> the, the, so these are times for ranting. So I, I I'm, I'm just gonna also make a make an assumption uh, that you have heard of George Floyd, right? I, I'm not. <laughs> the name sounds familiar. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think I may have heard it on TV a couple times, or maybe on on some live somewhere. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So here's a name I want to throw out. Uh, you may have heard of this name too. The name is um, it just it just slipped my mind. <laughs> uh, uh, help me out. It's the guy, uh, the news anchor from CNN. Don uh, Lemon. That was arrested. No. His name, Jimenez. Jimenez. No. Jimenez is the last name that you should know as well. What sort of? I hadn't heard anything about a CNN anchor arrested. Um, I've heard of the protest uh, that went on last night and the day before in Atlanta uh, due to uh, the murder of Richard Brooks. Okay, yeah. It was, it's Omar Jimenez, by the way. The, the name of the show. I'm sorry. Omar Jimenez. This is kind of where I jumped into the issue full foot because I had heard of George Floyd, but I didn't really know this story so much. And um, I uh, turned on my television one morning, obviously not that long after it, and I I was watching the CNN broadcast live. So this is as it was happening, and the news anchor was Omar Jimenez. And uh, he's a black anchor uh, on the man on the streets for CNN. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were covering, I want to say it was the morning after the first night of protests with George Floyd. And um, he had his news team with him and he was talking about what had happened that night and how things kind of blew up out of control. But um, things were things were now under control. The streets were peaceful 
but this this large contingent of police officers had moved in to the area and uh, back in Atlanta they were asking Jimenez to just go over quickly what this whole thing was all about and he was going to he was about to recap the whole uh, George Floyd incident and what led him there and just as he did the police came up to him and uh, he said, okay, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta deal with this situation. And he's talking to the police and this is all unfolding live. And we couldn't hear the police side of the conversation very well, but we kept hearing Jimenez uh, say, well, okay, we will, uh, this is where we're told to be, but we'll be glad to be somewhere else. Wherever you want us to be, it's fine. You know, he made sure that they knew that he was with CNN, he has a badge. The conversation kept on that way for a couple of minutes and then couple of officers just grabbed him, put his hands behind his back, cuffed him. The last thing you uh, hear him say is, why am I being arrested? <laughs> and I dragged that fellow off like a gangster mm. and his crew. And that to me was actually the touchstone of my rage with this. It, it wasn't the George Floyd incident at all. It was, it was adjacent to the George Floyd incident. So I just wanted to, um, to give some context on this. I mean, when I had heard about George Floyd, I just, I knew scant detail. I was watching the news for it, but that, that incident right there enraged me. It, it shook me in a way that few things have. And once again, it may not have shaken me that way if uh, I had seen it as a recording, you know, a, a later report, but it was, it was just happening right there. I called my mother in Alabama. I was, I was so shaken by it. I had to, I had to yell at somebody. What are moms for? <laughs> so, I mean, if she didn't want me to call and randomly yell at her over outrages, she should have died by now. So she's still alive. She gets to be yelled at from time to time for no good reason. <laughs> Love you, mom. So tell me where you got in on the rage in this uh, particular incident. How did? Uh, what cereal were you eating at the time? <laughs> Well, with, with George Floyd, I was actually just getting off of work, doing this lovely Toronto work from home with my uh, kids and all. And I actually just glanced at the video uh, because I had to deal with my kids. And I knew what the story was going to be as soon as I saw a black man's name that wasn't already a celebrity and police. I knew what was going to happen. I, I knew... Yeah, he got shot. He was unarmed. Now, later on, I can figure out what the details and all were. But you, you see a random, uh, a random black man's name and police, and unfortunately, you know it's the same thing, different days. He got shot for being black, essentially. So I clamped down on it there so I could get my kids together. Then later on that night, watching more of the video and some of the protests, I just started bubbling up more in me. You, you say it kind of sparked the rage for you, but in my case, I've been angry at the police for somewhere around 30 years now, uh, ever since Susan Smith. You, you mentioned your mom is in Alabama. I'm in South Carolina, and my first instance with this type of police brutality and police racism was when I was 15 and all of 90 pounds and cops were harassing me because I fit the description of the 30 to 40 year old man that allegedly kidnapped Susan Smith and her kids. Uh, 
ever since then, I've had a kind of a, a sour spot for police. Huh. <laughs> it's not like it was a match touching off, uh, off gunpowder with me. It's, it, it's been simmering forever. Because I'm, I'm 40 now. So, I mean, literally for most of my life, it's been simmering. Yeah, so I just turned 50 uh, this year. And I have not been simmering for most of my life. I'll tell you where I was for most of my life later. But I left out an important part of this drama. And I think it is probably important to just mention another name, Amon Aubrey. Yeah. You remember Amon Aubrey? He was the name that everyone was talking about before George Floyd. A friend of mine, uh, a white friend of mine, had been talking to me about uh, Aubrey, and we were, we were having some conversation about that. We have this conversation every time one of these things comes up. And um, I hadn't been following the uh, Aubrey case that much. And, you know, by the time I really got uh, interested in looking up the details, that, that's, when, that's when the ploy thing hit. And so I didn't even have time to get mad at the Aubrey <laughs> Situation. It's just a, just another fool then got killed by some white folks. He did he did not get uh, a full fifteen minutes of fame <laughs> because th these things just happen in rapid succession. Bam, 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 <laughs> and it's so exhausting. It's just it's it's really exhausting. And the, the list doesn't actually end with George Floyd uh, either. So the fact is, it's so much. It's so easy to get angry and jaded. I spent most of my life, mm, yeah, I'd say most of my life, not angry and jaded. And that's because I spent most of my life as black conservative. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been on the other side of the issue. These, The way I used to hear these things, if we go back to Rodney King, the way I used to hear these things is, you know, I would, I would see the story and I would say, well, you know, whatever the black guy, whatever the police did, I'm sure the guy deserved it. I don't, I don't, I don't have any pity for him at all. That's just one more criminal off the streets by any means. And you might think, how could you as a black man think that way? But uh, I did think that way. And I know for a fact, that's how a lot of well-meaning white people think, uh, even if they won't say it out loud to you. They used to say it out loud to me, <laughs> right. um, I, because I was one of them. <laughs> they, they forgot. <laughs> but, um, you you, you were one of the good Negroes. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I would have uh, I would have been the uh, descendant of a house slave. That feels like. And so I definitely enjoyed many of the benefits of being a properly well-heeled, well-trained, tame black man. And when you were that, you don't see, you don't see happening to the others out in the field, even though it's most of them. And you tend to think it's, well, it's their own fault for one way or the other. I mean, um, these white people aren't so bad. Look, I eat three square meals a day, and I wear this nice suit, uh, and I take care of their dog. You know, it's uh, you know, it's a very different existence that you have, and everything that you know about race, you learn from white people. So, um, you'd be surprised. It's very easy to think uh, that way. The the analogy that I used the other day, speaking privately to someone, but I'll use it here. The analogy, if you are uh, religiously inclined, might be Moses. What was Moses? Well, Moses was 
a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was a dirty, slimy Jew. But did he know that? Eh, he was raised by uh, he was raised by the princess. He was he was raised to be the heir apparent. He was raised in the mansion. He was educated, had the uh, good ring on his finger and the good robe uh, on. He commanded people. The Hebrews that he commanded were his own people. <laughs> there, you know. But did he see their slavery as a problem? No, not really. Because everything he knew about the heroes, he learned from the Egyptians, right? Uh, and so it took it took a little bit before he realized, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. And that's kind of how it was with me, and that's how it is with a lot of um, people, I would say. So that would be the, the analogy I would use there. But it sounds like you have always been on the, the rougher side of the line. Well, yeah. Um, you you mentioned uh, you you would have been a descendant uh, of uh, of house negroes. I, I've been able to trace my lineage back to just a little bit before slavery, uh, before slavery ended, and well, legal non-prison slavery ended at least um, <laughs> before the Civil War. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty exact. Qualified. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to talk about uh, that. Uh, in a little bit, but yes, go ahead. And yeah, field field nigger field Negroes all the way now. I think um, we could probably say field niggers. <laughs> can, we, can we say that? Honestly, you and I are talking around a fairly common part. <clears throat> so when you study this uh, in history, or you talk to the old ones who used to understand and use this terminology, what we're talking about is field niggers versus house niggers. Yeah. And so I'm not entirely sure why we need to dance around that. No worries, no worries. I was just, um, with your previous conservative sensibilities and, and with the, uh, this going out to sex soup as well, just wanted to, <laughs> to you tone know, it down, I, tone it down just a tad, but. i about those fools. Uh, <laughs> man, their email address is like, Delightful bitches or something like that. Uh, so I think we can say house niggers. All right, well, just just somewhere on the same page there. All right, yes. But um, but yeah, how, how, now, how? now my friends, uh, they all cringe now because they're used to the tame, the tame version of me. You know, the the, the good black man. So yeah, but yeah, that's that's that that that's it. The uh, the, the good the, the good the good Negro. Uh, but yeah. what I was what I was going at is with my background and the background of a lot of people in my community here in South Carolina and those descendants of the uh, field niggas, we grew up on the other side, um, other side than you, like you said, and we had to be not only bilingual in that we could talk to each other differently than we will talk to someone at work or blah, blah, blah. But we actually have kind of a split personality when it comes to it because we have to be able to walk and function in the black society as well as the mainstream white American society. Whereas those of a more uh, pink hue, and I, I tend to call them pink instead of white, and that's brown or melanated instead of black, because of the connotations with those words, white is always good, black is always bad. So I try and get away from those, So just so you uh, have an idea. But um, 
There's a few negative connotation for white uh, whiteheads. Uh, pop those. Let's see. You're, you're pale as a ghost. Uh, you have no. You know that's that's not uh, healthy. Uh, white white spots on fruit. That's not good. Don't eat that. Um, so I mean, they're 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 one or two. Yeah, exactly. One or two. <laughs> as opposed to how many for good. Uh, you know? uh, right. No. <laughs> so. I'm not actually arguing against you. <laughs> that, that, and the fact that that, and the fact that calling them pink really pisses them off. I can live with that. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, or, uh, it's not like it isn't true. On the um, Enterprise, I uh, used to call Captain Archer pink skin. Right. Pink skins. <laughs> <laughs> but w- when you grow up in a black culturally and black society um, on the other end of the, of the spectrum than you were, you have to learn how to live in that other society as well. When you, grow yes. up in, when you grow up in pink society, because it's the mainstream, because it's the default, you don't have to be able to move into another society. You, know? you don't have to be able to, to see the viewpoint of anyone else because yours is the default. Everyone has to conform to you. Right, and um, let me just let me just add to that because I know that there's some listening from SNS and other places that may not understand this thing that we're talking about. I don't want to simplify it to say there are two kinds of black people, but there are two kinds of black people <laughs> at, at, at minimum, and it's a, a very deeply entrenched gulf between the two. Uh, we do not historically get along. And so if you're thinking about black culture as a monolithic thing, you are wrong. You are so wrong. <laughs> and the fact is, I growing up, so and I won't say too much about my growing up, but I will say that I lived, I have lived in some black neighborhoods and I've lived in white neighborhoods, but I've grown up around white people more than black people. I've had, you know, my church experiences were white church experiences just as much as they were black church experiences. Uh, white education experiences. All of my wives were white. Yes, I said all of my wives. Um, <laughs> Did you have them all at the same them. time? That's the question. If only. <laughs> um, I, uh, so if I did, I think I, that's to be married to all of them. Uh, <laughs> but that's not how it works in this country. I'm a I'm a bad candidate for marriage, people. So if I find myself divorced again, don't marry me. Uh, but the only the people who marry me to are white women. I've never had a black wife. I've never had a black girlfriend. And that's that's fairly interesting all by itself, a thing that I'm not going to deeply explore. But what I what I will say is that when I began my ministry, I did a ministry for a little while. Uh, when I was still a Christian, I grew up in the church. I, I, I've, been, uh, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, of course you're black. We all have. We oh. all have. There are no I, native black atheists okay i've actually met i've actually met quite a few since i've come out uh in the south but (laughs) they're lying (laughs) (laughs) we have all been through the church we have been through the church uh maybe maybe in the north you've met a few in the south come on on. (laughs) in atlanta it's it's uh they're 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 usually the sons and daughters of ex-panthers and (laughs) and the like But uh, but yeah, I've met quite a few that have never well, never I, touched me. When I was there, I did a, a racial reconciliation ministry. Uh, mm. So I don't I don't know if you've ever oh, yeah. uh, seen or taken part of any of 
notes, but um, I had to I had to learn something about Black history because I thought I knew about Black history, but I only knew about one side of Black history, and so it was a little awkward at first. But I I did learn. I uh, took a deep dive, took uh, years to to do this, and I realized that people used to say that I was racist against Black people, and I thought they were fools, but Actually, I, I discovered they were right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that is that is probably true. I was probably bigoted against a certain type of black person because I had drank deeply from the uh, black conservative ideas, the very white conservative ideas, really. So I had to learn how to deal with, work with, talk to, and live around the type of black person that wasn't my kind of black person. Mm. Which which seemed like most of us <laughs> actually, and it was like it was a different thing to me. I approached getting to know blackness kind of like a white person would, because I didn't really know it at all, and it was scary. It, it was it was scary uh, surrounding myself by the by the field niggers mm. and learning their language and culture, and it took me a long time to just recognize and be able to admit, you know what, you do have a culture that is uh, legitimate, that's valid. Uh, and le- learning how to walk between the two types of black people. Walking among white people was easy. Walking among black people was hard. But I did learn it. And, well, think, uh, think about how frightening and, and uh, possibly difficult that was for you as someone who we would intrinsically welcome just by color of your skin, more so than, uh, say, the uh, Karen, and just to throw that word out there, (laughs) the Karen who is immediately, when trying to blend in or trying to learn uh, about the culture, is immediately seen with suspicion. And if things ever went down, and there's a Karen who went through the same experience that you did to figure out how to walk between the two cultures, and you side by side and things went down, the Karen can still rely on her whiteness to have at least a little bit more of a pass to you. Well, right, but in, they actually may get a little bit of a pass for being unfamiliar with culture and maybe they can say things wrong, but if they're trying, you know, they, they might get a pass. Me, I didn't really get a pass because I, I, didn't, I honestly, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't, I was afraid of the people I was around, and I mean, I, at first, I literally talked like um, like this. How how are you doing, homie? Uh, what, what is, what Hello, is my fellow mother? black people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Can I say it was inauthentic? <laughs> I, I mean. I, every time I used a, um, you know, anything that seemed like jargon, I would have to stop and think, did I use that right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to go home. <laughs> Where are the suburbs? These aren't the suburbs. <laughs> uh, white people saved me. <laughs> so, yeah, it's we have historically not been one people. And honestly, there hasn't been much that has been able to 
unite us as a people. And I don't, I don't know that we're united even now. You know, there's always going to be a difference, it seems, between someone like a Barack Obama and a Jesse Jackson. They don't seem to, they don't seem to breathe the same air. <laughs> they, they are much closer than, than, than you would expect. I, I'm not sure what your um, growing up black conservative take of Jesse Jackson is or was, but uh, yeah, <laughs> he he's he's firmly and we we traded him a long time ago in the in the oh, did we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, I, don't, I don't keep up with the black news. He, I don't know what we did. <laughs> he, he he's only relevant for for uh, conservatives mostly and eh, a good deal of um, respectable. Democrats, uh, well, this is my friend. He's our token. He's the one. He, this is how it should be done. Nah, <laughs> we didn't like him back when he was running with uh, Martin Luther King. Also, somebody that me personally, I don't particularly like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 I, I said some very incendiary things on my last podcast about Martin Luther King. I, I haven't received the death threats yet, but I feel like they're going to be coming soon. Oh, no, not from uh, my side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked him a lot back in my Christian days, back when I was studying to become a, a minister, to the point where I went to his alma mater, uh, Morehouse, with the goal of majoring in religion, going that whole Reverend Doctor route. I, I, I liked him. <laughs> but then I went to Morehouse and met some of his classmates, like people who actually knew him and went to uh, History 101 with him, like classmate classmates. I started, I was able to work with the Journal of Negro History, which was situated at Morehouse at the time, and see some of his papers from back then, see some of his, um, his classwork, and get to know him a good deal better, chill with his kids. <laughs> and yeah, he is not a, he is quickly became one of my least favorite people, both in and out of the civil rights movement, just in his personal life. Um, right, just, but it, it's, <laughs> it's often true that great men are not good men. Well, that's that's even his uh, iconic place in the civil rights uh, movement is pretty much bullshit. <laughs> he was the figurehead of it for the most part, and I'm not a fan of his nonviolent stance, and never really have been of his nonviolent stance. Let's talk about violence. So, first of all, let me uh, courageously say I don't. I, I am. Well, this is not the courageous part. I don't like violence, and I wish that all revolutions could be done without it. But I don't know of any that have ever been done without it. Not a um, <laughs> and so when I hear um, white people speak favorably of nonviolent protests, and you know, when a person protests, and then the white people say that was a good protest, I immediately think, well, that was not a good protest because the other side liked it. Well, <laughs> so there's already something wrong with it. You are already playing into their hand. Um, you are protesting in the approved manner. And a protest is not something the other side ought to approve. Yeah. <laughs> a protest ought to be scary. There's a uh, quote, I can't remember who it's from, but I heard it about three years ago. Um, it might have been Sean King, again, friend of mine from Morehouse. Uh, we were doormates uh, my freshman year. But he said something uh, along the lines of, if you have to get a permit for it, it's the parade, not a protest. 
right. <laughs> yes. That's, that's it exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to state. So I'm just going to steal that. Um, if you if you've got to get a permit for it, it's a parade, not a protest. And yeah, when the when the people in power give you permission to protest, you're not protesting. Right. That's the thing about peaceful protests that bother me. Even though I I still say I don't I don't like the idea of violence, but I don't. I'm not entirely sure what you feel like you can accomplish with peaceful protest because the people in power are not scared enough of you. They're not moved enough by you, not shaken enough by you to actually do uh, anything. Correct. Which is, which is one of the reasons why this whole coronavirus lockdown, this uh, corona team that we've kind of been off and on again for the last couple months when the um, mostly conservatives again, uh, mostly pink, have been protesting it against it. Let us go back out. Let us go back out. They've done so with guns on their backs, visible, and nothing's happened to them because there is the violence or threat of violence that, okay, we can't, the pigs, those in power, the police can't just do anything to them because, hey, we can see that these people are armed, that they are willing to fight for what they believe in. And we start getting things opened up. When they protest for, when they, and those really most of the times are protests, no permits or anything like that, for whatever, they have their weapons on them, proudly showing them. Another legacy of, of slavery in this country is that black folk are afraid of guns. We don't own them. We don't play with them. We don't we don't do cops and robbers. We don't do Nerf guns. We barely do water guns. We're afraid of guns. But that's how things get done in this country. So can you imagine um, any of the protests, the protests in New York, the protests in Minneapolis, if a, a thousand black people marched on the town square with rifles and permits? Don't, I mean, uh, just they, they, they're allowed to carry them. If that had been the scene... We would have rolled tanks we into did. those cities. We, we did roll tanks. <laughs> we, yeah, well, I, right, we did. I, I went, I went to it, one we, of the protests. We were armed with, water, we were armed with bottles. <laughs> right, right. I, I, went, I went to one of the protests, or I drove through one of the protests downtown in my city, and I was pushed off the road by one of the, uh, the SWAT team's tanks. <laughs> and... Everybody there, again, water bottles and, and cell phones. Uh, there may have been a couple concealed carries like mine, but again, concealed, so yeah, out of sight, out of mind type deal. But well, you they, better conceal it. Well, that's, that's the law here in South Carolina. It's not an open sure. carry state. If it were an open carry state, yes, I would have had mine out. But, it, but you're, I mean, you're lucky not to have yours out. I mean, there were there were stories uh, leading up to this not that long ago. I'm sorry I'm not armed with a list of names and so forth, just memories of the stories. I, I remember at least one situation where uh, police had stopped a, a black man, and he actually did have a gun, but he was not using his gun or threatening with his gun. He was uh, reaching to show, to get his license, right. uh, to show that he had license uh, to carry. They shot that fool dead because black people aren't supposed to have guns. Right. That's, I don't care what the law is. That, if, if all the people that we've been talking about had guns on them, the white people in the country would have been saying, oh, yeah, good riddance. They're saying you know, that you anyway. You know that carrying guns is legal, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're saying that anyway, though. 
<laughs> that, that's the thing. We tried, we've had conversations about it for centuries at this point, about race relations and how to make things better for centuries. We've had marches and protests, both the valid and invalid kinds, and resolutions passed for centuries. Same shit. We've tried holding hands and singing Kumbaya uh, like uh, King wanted. We've tried kneeling like Cap wanted. We tried sitting down. We tried talking. We tried a podcast. We've tried to expose it on the news like uh, Yemenis. We've tried to do it from the inside, like John Lewis becoming congressman or senator or whatever the hell he is. Nope, not a particular fan of his either. We've even gotten to the point where we've had a black president. Nothing has changed because we're still... Well, nothing nothing significant. Well, I'm not not arguing that. I'm just saying that I I actually will come back to this. I kind of think that having a black president has worked against us. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I don't... Actually helped us. I think it hurt. Oh, but, most um, definitely. That 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 um, Democrat Republican two year uh, pendulum in the in the White House, uh, the the blowback that we're getting in the form of Trump. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it, it's it taking us back to the fifties and sixties. But it also hurt us in another way. It hurt us rhetorically because now the white person can say, "Oh, there's no systemic racism." You see, you've had a black president. Well, they, they've been say, they've been saying that they said, "Oh, there's no such thing as racism." Look at Oprah. Oh, there's no such thing as as, as racism. Look at W. E. B. Du Bois uh, before him. Oh, there's no such thing as racism. Look at Nat, uh, not Nat Turner, but uh, Frederick Douglass. It's the same thing. We're we're not going to change the excuses they use or them trying to reason their way out of it, out of what's going on by using the same tactics. It's insanity, literally insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. So they used to say that about me too. You know, there's no such thing as racism. What are you talking about? Look at you, you're doing okay. Right. That just makes me want to punch punch them in the face. Uh, and I know that that sounds uh, like I've got this pent up violence in me. Trust me, I'm not gonna punch anyone in the face. I've got, uh, I've got a pinch nerve. I suffer from it greatly. I'm not, I'm not swinging this hard for nothing. <laughs> I, I am in no way, shape, or form an advocate for nonviolence. Punch him. Punch a, punch a Nazi, punch a racist. Yes. Yeah. If I, look, if I'm with you. If I were young, I, I probably would. Um, and the thing is, I had asked about violence earlier. So here's my violent past. Uh, I'm legally blind and black. I've got a double whammy uh, on me. And... Uh, so I have had to punch my way out of sticky situations lots of times uh, as a kid. Mm-hmm. There's no help for it. You either become a victim or you become good with your hands. Now, and honestly, now, 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 now scale, now scale that hands, up, now scale that up to society at large, and you're <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, no, and that's exactly where we are that. now. I'm, I'm all the way with. Because uh, once again, you're either you're either going to become a victim or you're going to become good with your hands. You're gonna at some point violence comes to you. You don't have to go to violence. You don't have to seek it out. You don't have to have a you know a wish to to hit somebody. At a certain level of minority status, 
in this country, it will come to you. And you will either have to uh, stand and deliver or you will be a victim. And I would say that even if you're not good at fighting, it's better to fight and get your ass kicked because that person who bullied you is less likely to do it again. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. because they don't want to fight. Bullies actually don't want to fight. Or, or, or uh, and this is this is true at the societal level too. So I'm I'm speaking almost metaphorically. Or, here. Or, I, or, or even if that same bully, because I've been in that situation as well. I got bullied pretty much up into high school, but I was in one fight in high school. It was my last fight in high school. Uh, the guy who was bullying me, he just caught me at a bad day. Uh, confluence of uh, of things happening just caught me wrong. I fought back. I gave as good as I got. Everybody was doing the whole, ooh, you got beat up, you got beat up, for, to both of us. But after that one, he still bugged me a bit, but nobody else did, you know? So even if that bully that is that, that you're actually physically fighting against does come back at you, other people won't because they, they don't want to get in fights. I'm not one of those people who think that uh, bullies don't like to fight. Bullies like to fight. <laughs> fight. Fighting is a fun thing. That's why MMA and pro wrestling and all of, literally all of our violent sports like lacrosse and football, uh, hockey, that's why they're there. They're outlets for violence for people who are, who are intrinsically violent. Bullies do like to fight. They don't like to lose. I, I think I think that's true of some bullies. I mean, a lot of bullies uh, run in packs, and so they actually don't. They like to beat people up. They don't want to fight, and so you know, you get three or four people in one person. That's that's someone who doesn't actually like to fight. And you notice these incidents of police violence. They uh, almost from Rodney King to George Floyd. They happen in packs. So you seldom hear about one police officer using police brutality. <laughs> it's usually like four or six or eight. <laughs> and uh, that's, when, that's when they can show their real machismo. I, you know, it's, it's, it's awkward uh, talking about violence, but I think, that, uh, I think that white people need to hear black people speaking honestly about violence. <laughs> so this is kind of a good thing. White people like violence too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they like, they, because <laughs> most of us, well, let, let, let's just be honest. Most of us believe in just war. This is America. We're not pacifists here. And when a when the cause is right, you know, when we're on the side of the angels, we got a lot of big guns that uh, people in the rest of the world don't have. We are we are very very strong believers. We in violence to make change when we think the cause is right. And well, so that's, that's I do think we there's always... something to be said for black people standing up and saying, when is this cause righteous enough? There are two things in that that I, I want to discuss. So I am of the opinion, based on being a history major, being uh, my religion, uh, my personal history, I'm of the opinion that worldwide, American is synonymous with white. So one, when you say Americans love a, a good cause, being on fighting for the side of the angels. Yeah, that's, that, that's always been the more wasp-ish side of America. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and capitalist male. Those angels are on their side. And the, the wars, those just wars, they, they always tend to coincide with the economic 
or well, most of the economic but or political goals of whoever's in charge at the time. Because remember, the the Confederates thought that they were on the side of the angels, that they were literally doing what their Bible told them to do, <laughs> uh, and and that they owned slaves, and uh, that they their Bible told them that the white man was superior, and everyone else was going to hell. I mean, it's all a matter of perspective. Right, but no matter what your perspective, you know, it's not a, I'm not making a statement that our wars are always just, but when we think they're just, we're really okay with violence. That's all I'm saying. So at what point is the black cause just enough for violence? You ask the white person that. Never. <laughs> it's never going to be just enough for violence. And this is the thing that, I'm, that I've been coming around to just over the last few days, uh, really, is, is I have to let go of this idea that I'm against violence at all costs here, because I'm not against violence. I actually believe in just war uh, myself. Hell, I believe in the death penalty. So there, there are times when there's nothing else you can do but kill a person. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a strong statement, but I stand by that. Um, so I, I do believe in violence. This, this is the thing. I believe in violence. It's just that we're, it's not politically correct to say I believe in violence when it comes to defending the rights of black people. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to stop that. I, uh, I do believe in violence when it is, when an injustice is being done and negotiation does not work. War is diplomacy by other means. When do we get our diplomacy? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. And I know it's pie in the sky. I've been told this many times by many people in my social circles. But uh, it's pie in the sky. But I don't think that we are ever going to get justice in this country uh, or the equality in the United States as it is now. My official position, not the one of Angry Black Rant, but John, is burn it all down and start over. Scrap the Constitution, <laughs> take out the parts that, that are interesting, and redo it. The American experiment has failed because it started out uh, on a rotten foundation. We can't just repaint the house. We've got to tear it down and start it over again. So let me, uh, let's go there, uh, because this is an entree for me to talk about history, one of my favorite subjects, and nobody, nobody cares about history. Oh, I can't. Uh, as a person who's done this for a long time, <laughs> nobody gives a damn about history, so right. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck being above with uh, something that nobody cares about. You're, you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna have that problem with me, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, this is what you just said there, I think, uh, may be the heart of the conversation. And I think it's the hardest thing that white people can hear. And in fact, I think most of them, even the ones on your side, stopped listening when you said burn it all down. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to just join you again and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a burn it all down kind of guy too. And I think it's a matter of perspective. You know, a lot of people in America think that the American experiment has worked beautifully. And I would say that it's half worked. Well, well, <laughs> you know, it, it worked beautifully uh, I, for, for some people, kind of like the 1950s uh, was, was 
great America for some people. Well, well again, <laughs> so, I, 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 we have to go back to that whole definition of American as white. Yes. <laughs> if if you're yeah. white, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant male, America's fucking great. Fucking hey, dude. It, <laughs> you <awesome>. know? Uh, <laughs> Anything yeah, else? So, they don't, these people that, uh, you know, are cringing when we say burn it all down don't understand Colin Kaepernick's kneeling. They think that he's disrespecting their great-grandfather who uh, wore the uniform. Uh, Colin Kaepernick does not give a damn about your Uh, great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather probably owned his great-grandfather as a slave, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, you are really missing the point when you don't see that. So let's, let's go backwards. A little bit. I want to regress the conversation and bring it all the way back to burn it down, so that at least I can try to leave a trail of crumbs for people to follow if they do want to dig into the history. Everybody knows about slavery, right? <laughs> Everybody knows that. The, the, yeah, that it happened, but right, that's right. that's about they it. They think of it as the past, <laughs> but they they do at least know about it, right? Right. <laughs> so, okay, so I think that's there to start there and we can say at that point we can we can take a snapshot and say that's institutional racism everybody so, will agree so now, so let I, I think i think we need to back it up just a little bit more okay so the original constitution before the amendments nothing about slavery at all because they wanted to push it down the road a little bit then they put the uh three-fourths uh, slaves are three fourths of a pe- of, of a person, so black people are not real people in the eyes of the Constitution. Again, from day one, not real people. That is institutional. If your foundational document doesn't recognize you as a real person, you can't get more institutional than that. When they try to fix slavery through the amendments. Uh, a little bit further, a little bit further back, with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln, the Great Emancipator, he emancipated his his proclamation was for people or slaves in the states that were currently under rebellion in the Confederacy. For he issued an order that affected people that he had no control over. I mean, okay, you need to turn off the lights in your house over there, wherever you are right now, David. I'm ordering you to do that. And you're like, yeah, what the fuck ever. <laughs> when it became a uh, amendment where slavery is abolished, except in the instance of uh, criminal activity, uh, essentially, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it up in front of me right now, but slavery is abolished except as punishment for, for crime. That's the institutional racism that starts with the police. Right there. It's all the Constitution. Scrap that. Start over. So, uh, yeah, so let, let's make another observation about the Constitution. While, while we've got this dusty document open, uh, when it said old men are creating, uh, black men were not considered men. Women were not considered men. Right. So I'm, I'm just saying, when they said it, they actually meant it. Right. Uh, they meant white. What they what they really meant was uh, free white men are created equally. Right. Um, because because a black man did not have uh, was not seen as a 
bull man under the law. Uh, that it was it was understood that we weren't talking about them. Mm-hmm. They, they and, were they were never written into that great ideal. And, and, we, we had to break our way into that great and, ideal. And, and even with the white men that were a part of that ideal, it was only land owning white men. Land owning white men, right? So the one percent uh, from back then. <laughs> the I. Idea though, I think all white men had at least the opportunity to to own land. They could, right. you know, there were there were not artificial barriers in 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 their way. And so, even if you are not a land owning man at that time, you could be. There was nothing in your in your caste that would keep you from doing that, and there was nothing in the law that would, you know, keep keep a white man from doing it. There were many things in the law that uh, tried to keep black men from only land, even when they could. So, uh, yeah, so in order to be counted as one of the all men, we had to break into that. We had to burst into that, tear and claw our way into that. That was not meant for us. And so that is that is important to uh, observe, and I appreciate you bringing that uh, out. And so, yeah, we can look at these early um, examples of institutional racism, and I challenge the white listener to Give me the time in history when they think the institutional racism stopped. That's that's simply a challenge that I think a lot of them never think about. What I, I think what some are thinking about is well, slavery ended, right? We got the emancipation. That did not end institutional racism, as you mentioned. The very uh, idea of the police force. Now we go back to the uh, slave patrols, the patty rollers, as they were yeah. called back then. Their whole job was to deal with the black problem. Now, originally it was the escaped slave problem, but think about it for a moment. You're a white man in the South, and you're kind of deputized to round these people up uh, because they're a threat. You don't know the difference between an escaped slave and a free ma- a free black man. It was it was an, a black person problem <laughs> that they had to deal with, and after slavery was over, that institution of dealing with the black problem continued with policing. So we had almost 100 years of Jim Crow. Well, it's a little bit even deeper than that, uh, because we're talking about the uh, landed and unlanded white men back in the uh, slave patrol days. The ones who were picked to be the slave patrol were almost always the lower class unlanded white men who couldn't get a job doing anything else for whatever reason. So they used white lower classes against black lower classes because the white lower classes could always say, hey, no matter how bad I'm, I am or my family is doing right now, we're not them. We have somebody that we can look down on. And as long as we keep them down through these slave patrols, through catching runaway slaves who were never enslaved, just random black people because they could, and essentially killing them because they could, um, as long as we keep them down, our position is safe. We're not going to be at the bottom. We may not be at the top, but damn it, we're not them, them dirty niggers. Right. And that, that's, by the way, that's the history of the police. <laughs> that is, that was their, that's who they were and that was their job. And society was very happy with them because there were people, those people were committed to dealing with the black uh, threat. There's always been a black threat throughout history for uh, for white people to be afraid of and use harsh measures to deal with it. It doesn't matter whether the threat was real or imagined. That, that 
threat was always there for them. And so during that hundred years of Jim Crow, it got bad. Uh, it really more like ninety years, but it got it got bad. It got um, ugly in in ways that are hard to recount. Read a book, people. Uh, during during that time, uh, there was something called sundown towns. Are you familiar with sundown towns? Oh yeah, there there so, are sundown sections of there were sundown sections of the city uh, where I grew up here in South Carolina. So yeah, I'm. <laughs> Yeah, those, right. Those places I, that I, if your skin was dark, you did not get caught there after after the sun went down. Right. No. So I'm I'm thinking though that possibly 98 percent of the listeners do not know what we're talking about. <laughs> 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 because let me tell you something: sundown towns are not taught in school. Right. So I don't I don't know where they would have um, read about it. But yes, that is exactly right. Basically. It's places where a nigger better not be called by sundown. That's literally what, what how how they got their name, and they were uh, they weren't called that. Sundown towns, and um, in in these places, uh, if you were there at, at a certain hour, it was open season on you. Literally open, so you can just be rounded up, uh, raped, lynched, ripped from limb to limb, whatever. It didn't matter. It, Many citizens could be involved. Uh, no one was ever arrested for lynching a black person <laughs> during this time. Well, I, I, this is an well, exaggeration. Maybe someone was. Convicted. <laughs> but, they were arrested a couple of times, but they were never convicted. <laughs> right. But, so there's a, there's a history of this, and I want to connect uh, a little bit more history because it's not just the police that we're talking about. It's also the vigilante organizations that worked alongside the police because – there was never enough "quote unquote" official police to get the job done, and there were always concerned citizens uh, who formed militia groups. They formed clans, and yes, and they they colored outside of the lines where the official police could not. And this is why I kind of say they worked uh, alongside and hand in hand. They were doing God's work. Uh, a lot of times they're the same people. Yes, a lot of times. And um, so it's important to, to recognize this relationship between the militia and the police and the and the things that were done that the various militias slash clans uh, slash respectful organization, uh, organizations did at that time to this day. You know, we have black people being uh, harried by concerned night watch militia-minded people, kind of like Aubrey, uh, mm. just before Floyd, like Trayvon Martin. I think that he was one of those. But in, and it's hard, even to this day, to convict those militias. To this day, it's hard to get a conviction. You think it's hard to convict police? It's, it's hard to convict the militias. The, the, um, those, those side groups that, that operate that way, that is a part of our history. That didn't just start today. That has been the case uh, for as long as there has been the black threat all the way back to slavery and, and post-slavery. So we can't say that um, it ended then. What about Martin Luther King? Did Martin Luther King solve the problem for us, John? <laughs> uh, yeah. He, 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 solved, he, he solved the problem for, uh, for a lot of the paint skins. Uh, he did. <laughs> <laughs> A, I know it sounds really strange for people. I'm listening to this with the ears of my white friends because you've got to remember I'm I'm mostly white. 
Yes, I'm dark skinned. I'm probably darker than you, but trust me, I'm mostly white. Um, white, white, white on the inside? Like, I'm white on the inside. <laughs> I don't want to say Oreo, but no, I'm messing with you. <laughs> I, I am. Um, I would have had beautiful children if I had had any. Um, so, yeah, so Martin Luther King, he didn't really fix the problem, and yet a lot of white people this day say, okay, well, the uh, Jim Crow laws were mostly taken off the books. They actually mistakenly think that all of the Jim Crow laws were taken off the books at that time. And that is not true. Up until uh, like 10 or 15 years ago, we still had laws on the books in some places against uh, mixed race marriages. Uh, now, they weren't enforced, but they were still on the books. A lot of those Jim Crow laws just never came off the books at all. Um, one one, and, uh, one good thing uh, from Jesse Jackson said uh, a quote similar to, it's no longer Jim Crow, it's James R. Crow Esquire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I mean, it's same same guy. <laughs> it's just a tad bit more sophisticated now. I'm sorry, that's uh, that's terrible. All right, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, thank you, Jesse Jackson. Um, <laughs> it's made all the funnier when you hear him say it with a lisp. Um, <laughs> so we let's let's just kind of whistle past Martin Luther King for the moment. If anyone on SNS wants to talk to me more about what I don't like about Martin Luther King and uh, why I why I think he was Actually, not. I, I won't say it was bad for black people, but he certainly wasn't good for us. Bad, was, bad for he black was, people. He was certainly good for <laughs> pacifying white racists of his day. He, he, uh, he served his job well. <laughs> so let's let's whistle past him for the moment and um, look at the, some of the reforms in the '60s, in the '70s for a moment. We'll get to drugs in just a minute. But one of the things I glossed over the last time I talked about this was uh, welfare. Uh, in our, our kind yeah. of a safety net, and I wanted the, to talk the about Black Panthers. Um, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> yeah, you you know welfare, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 came out exceedingly wrong, but I, I get I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> like what what you trying I'm to say, man? Out what the check is, all right. Uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's that's not what I'm asking. Uh, but I think it's I think it bears mention. Because the, the finances of poor blacks, uh, you know, poor everybody, really, but uh, I think we're really targeting poor blacks here, is an important part of the picture. I won't spend that much time on it, but I have been uh, on welfare in my lifetime. Not for a terribly long time, but uh, long enough to understand it, you know, as the British would say, I've been on the dole. And in our country, uh, so if there are people listening outside of the country, just... Um, Heads up, this may sound funny to your ear. In our country, we actually have, first of all, our welfare systems give you just enough income to die a little slower. There's nothing there that will help you actually live and prosper and, and better yourself. It's it's a very thin safety net, if, if we call it a safety net. But there are incentives within our welfare system that really should be called disincentives. So if you are on welfare, 
getting a job might be the wrong thing to do. In fact, in almost all cases, it is the wrong thing to do. What you're trying to do is maximize your income because you will lose your welfare. So you might get a job at McDonald's for minimum wage, but now that's all you've got. And that, that was that's probably worse than the welfare that you were getting. So you are disincentivized to work and get a job and build that way. You're disincentivized to save. Any savings you have would be counted against you. Uh, so again, and you, the, it, and it doesn't the, pay. And at the same time, you are incentivized to have more kids and not get married. I was uh, just about to get there. Go ahead and read, brother. Uh, uh, that was, <laughs> this is another part of it where I think our friends from across the pond simply would not understand this. Go ahead. Because you, you get more money depending on how many kids that you have and how many people are in the household. But as soon as you get married, those thresholds for how much you get and how it's dispersed and all drops. So one of the reasons why a lot of people that I personally know who are uh, on welfare live with their significant others for decades, never get married because it's uh, financially would ruin them. I know other people who have multiple, multiple kids one, they're not using protection, but they don't want to use protection because they know that, okay, my oldest is aging out of the system now, so I can't use use their money for uh, them for welfare, so I need to have another one now. I mean, it's the, the system itself is designed to keep, to keep people who are on it where they are. Uh, there's right. no upward mobility, regardless right. of what the uh, rhetoric says. We, we, we want the dignity... Dignity of work, but you really don't. <laughs> it is one of the best ways to keep uh, poor blacks poor, to keep black families uh, separated, and uh, and to make sure that that cycle is perpetuated. This quote unquote safety net is killing uh, our people. So, um, now, do you know the origins of this uh, safety net, though? Uh, some of it, but it sounds like you might know uh, more. So I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna give it to you. So and 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 it all starts again with armed black men, the Black Panthers. Just like how the NRA decided to be against assault weapons when Black Panthers stormed the California State Capitol legally, uh, they started doing um, weapons bans and things like that. One of the other things that the Panthers did in their communities was food programs. They'd give a uh, shell out breakfast for free to students or to kids or whoever else every morning in their communities because they knew their jobs weren't, their parents' jobs weren't enough to do it. People were going hungry. They would work with local shops to give out free shoes and pants, like Goodwill type stuff. And that's one of the ways that they recruited one of the ways that they they started to rise in a, in black neighborhoods were these were these um, helping hands programs. The government under Hoover, uh, FBI under Hoover, was doing everything that they could to disband Black Panthers uh, through COINTELPRO, trying to 
uh, put Panthers against each other. A lot of it, some of it worked, some of it didn't. But one of the things that worked very well for them was to criminalize a lot of the breakfast programs and those uh, Goodwill programs. And then almost immediately after criminalizing it, they would institute it as a, a new measure in the government, as a welfare program. So, so see, you don't have to go to the Black Panthers to get your food stamps and all that. You can come to us. And all of the, um, all of the negative smear campaign uh, that, that the FBI had against the Black Panther, Panthers, coupled with them doing exactly what the Panthers were doing, only uh, legitimately through the government, it shut it down. And those pro- types of programs started to trickle up to the rest of the uh, country out of California and became welfare. So I knew a part of the story, but not uh, not all of it. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's very important. And let me, let me just say that welfare, uh, no matter how it got started, was a good idea. Countries, countries that don't have safety nets, uh, real safety nets for their citizens, I don't know what they're thinking. And America... America's never had a great one, but I, I must say that with with the good that the Panthers intended, what came what ultimately came out of and what ultimately we have now is is the opposite of good for people who need a safety net. Because they took it out of the hands of the community that it was serving and essentially gave it to the to the government to the masters. Very very seldom when the government gets a hold of something does it make it better. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People grab we've got a library to read a book. Uh, so <laughs> let's let's progress it to um, Reagan, maybe um, a little after we um, get something called the war on drugs. How did how did how did we get such a drug problem, John? Reagan? <laughs> <laughs> you you just <laughs> Reagan was the governor of California when the Panthers did their due. And again, drugs was a good way of um, a good way of trying to delegitimize them. When he got to the White House, a lot of those same same uh, policies that he that he had towards uh, the Panthers got spread nationally. But um, Reagan was, from what I've read, is read was. Pretty much a uh, a uh, puppet. His uh, his advisors were and uh, wanted to keep black people down because that's what that's how they made their money. Uh, either in in the military industrial complex because black and brown folks make up the vast majority of the armed forces because we have very few other options or had very few other options at the time. Yeah, armed forces um, looks like a pretty good deal for us. Right. Uh, or they had something to do with the uh, prison system, which is where a good deal of us are as well. Or pharmaceutical uh, industry back then, where a lot of things were tested on us. Tuskegee experiment, uh, the HeLa genes from Henrietta Lack, uh, Lacks. I mean, th- this country has always been and continues to be built on the black on the backs of poorly paid, unhealthy, poorly educated black and brown people. That's that's so, never changed. So let's let's take a uh, a little bit more of a look at the drug problem and the war on drugs. So the problem with drugs 
I'm just going to summarize this the way a black per- a white a white person might think about drugs. The problem with drugs is uh, they mess up your mind and they make you do things and they're against God's will uh, above all else. And it's a black problem. Black people are doing illegal drugs far and away uh, more than white people. It's almost all black people. And they, they create violence on the streets and violence among each other. And, you know, why don't they just kill each other off? Because uh, we're tired of this scourge coming in from these darkies, uh, you know, ruining, ruining our good society. Well, here's the, here's the truth about drugs. White people use illegal drugs about the same rate as black people. <laughs> that is true today. It's always been true. That's not um, even uh, controversial. Furthermore, when uh, pol- even though police stop and arrest black people, it costs them drugs many times more than white people. They are found with possession of drugs at about one to two percent of those stops. In other words, about the same as white people. There's there's actually no evidence from the point of view of police actually making a in the quote-unquote war on drugs and finding that it's a black issue. It is not a black issue, so this might come as a surprise to some people. But somehow, somehow, and maybe you can talk about this because I honestly don't know the answer, somehow drugs became synonymous with black people. And so the war on drugs really became a war on black people. How did that? How did that take place in our minds? That it's black people doing it. Well, is it the media? Is it is it movies, television? What what made us think that? Well, it's it, it's not that the war on drugs became a war on black people. The war on drugs was always a war on black people. So um, let's let's take it back. I think the nineteen twenties or thirties. I can't remember exactly which one. The Zoot Suit Riots and marijuana. Marijuana hemp was a staple in the South alongside of tobacco. Washington, Jefferson, most of your founding fathers grew hemp right next to next to their tobacco plants. They didn't really smoke it all that much for whatever reason, but they grew it. Sometime in the uh, early stages of California, where the uh, Spanish workers, or the Mexican wor- workers, excuse me, were farming and all, they would bring uh, marijuana up because they used, it was a, kind of a stimulant for them. It, it helped them work better and longer in the heat and what have you. Eventually, white people, especially white women, started to smoke it as well because tobacco was considered to be uh, something that women just didn't do. They would do uh, marijuana or opium, which is far worse than than uh, most of the stuff that we have now. Shit, <laughs> or laudanum, uh, if they if they wanted to get uh, nice and technical with it. But um, what they found out, what they realized, was that uh, white people were getting addicted to it, and it was causing issues with them working or doing just their day-to-day stuff. When they'd ask them where they got it from, oh, we got it from, from our uh, Mexican worker, uh, gardener, or, or uh, whoever else. So uh, they started saying that marijuana specifically was a uh, devil's weed that the um, Mexicans used to try and get white women to be more pliant so that they could rape them and ravish them and, and do all the things that 
they've said that black people do to white women forever, you know? Uh, and that campaign spiraled and spiraled and spiraled uh, until, again, the 1920s, 30s or so, where a few Hispanic, uh, I say Hispanic because I think there are some Ecuadorians in there or, or what have you, but uh, Hispanic um, sailors were, well, excuse me, some sailors were accosting Hispanic people at the docks uh, because they didn't like them for whatever reason. They have to have marijuana because they were smoking. It was legal back then, so why not? And they pretty much uh, lynched the uh, the Hispanics there, and there was a little mini riot. They called it the Zoot Suit Riots because of how they dressed. Like I said, I think it was the 20s or 30s. I'm not sure. I don't have it in front of me. But um, that blew up because so many white people died in that riot. Went nationwide, and... Uh, the reporters did a quote-unquote deep dive and realized, hey, it was marijuana that did it. It wasn't. It wasn't because of anything racist, because we're we're Americans. We're not racist. It had to be the drugs. And again, it kept on going. They banned marijuana. Uh, looked at opium, which the opium wars. Yeah, read read up about that. How we, how the Brits, along with the U.S literally started wars to keep the Chinese addicted to opium. Um, but it kept it kept spiraling there. Uh, and that's around the same time, around the uh, Great Depression, where the FDA started uh, regulating what was in drugs, what was in, what was in food and, and what have you. And they realized that this whole class of drugs, the opiates, ones like opium, poppy, cocaine, heroin, all that, had um, possible medicinal like effects it. as well. <laughs> so Sorry. they want... Sorry. So, <laughs> so, so they... I'm a, I'm a man of many painkillers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so they, they wanted that to be in the hands of the government and not in the hands of uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Or, in this case, what, um, Jose Jesus... And uh, Tyrone. <laughs> uh, so they made it illegal for you to grow poppy and hemp and the things that that they'd been using forever at this point, uh, and criminalized it because it's a criminal act and it's something that we've been doing all all along before. We never stopped. So now it's just it's something else that they can throw at us that hey, drugs are the cause of everything. So by decriminalizing a thing that brown people were all, I mean, by criminalizing a thing that brown people were already doing, the war on drugs was always a synonymous, a synonymous with the war on brown people. Yes. Yeah, yes, um, uh, I can't remember. That's what, shitty. <laughs> I, I can't remember where I heard it from, but um, something along the lines of, I don't know of any black companies that make those little dime bags that you get marijuana in illegally uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know of any i don't know of any black country uh, companies that uh import and export or even grow poppy from argentina from argentina or uh, the south america or um southeast asia or anything <laughs> how is it how is it getting to the states to begin with because it's not us that's doing it 
you know? No, no. <laughs> we, we, we weren't flying those planes over we, the border. Yeah, we don't, um, we don't, we don't have uh, um, 200 acres worth of uh, marijuana fields in, in, in the forest somewhere. <laughs> how, would we have, how would we have gotten that land? Right. <laughs> it's, because it's a very land-intensive kind of thing. Right. It's, it's not we us. We have control of a lot of land. We, we, we are the scapegoats. Uh, we are the end users. Uh, yeah, we're the end users, and um, it's used as an excuse to not fix other things. Because if you can blame the problems in urban America on drugs, that means that it's an individual choice. It's my choice to take drugs. You know, it's um, it's something that I chose to do, so it's something that I have to handle. It's not saying that. It doesn't have anything to do with I'm taking drugs because I can't cope in this schizophrenic world. Uh, I'm afraid that every time I see a cop, I'm going to die. So I take uh, I, I smoke a joint every now and again to calm me down so I can sleep at night. In the meantime, <laughs> white women can just call their doctor and ask for another dose of laudanum. Right, right. Uh, just uh, and, and nowadays it would be um, uh, not heroin. What's that? Um, the the opioid ep- epidemic. Uh, I, I've been driving around and seeing. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've been driving around and seeing for the first time ever uh, billboards. If you're addicted to X Y Z, call us. We can help uh, with methadone. Right. Government are like, wait, what? It's an epidemic <laughs> now that now that white people are, uh, are prominent <laughs> white people are being affected by it. Um, yeah, what the fuck ever. <laughs> Um, so if, if, if you, white woman, are addicted to that Oxycontin that your doctor keeps writing you every time you ask for it, call us and we'll help. But if you see a black person smoking a joint, we are going to kill that fucker dead. Right. <laughs> so. so I, I, I uh, spent about a decade in Atlanta, both actually, yeah, about, about two decades in Atlanta, uh, both in college and outside of college. The safest I've ever felt, even when I was at college in our Morehouse there, the safest I would, I'd ever felt was in what everybody would consider at the time uh, the ghetto. My next door neighbor was a drug dealer. Uh, my neighbor upstairs was a rival drug dealer for a rival gang. That's the safest I felt ever because I knew nothing was going to go on there. They weren't trying to fight each other. They, 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 stood, they uh, respected each other. And they didn't want shit to go down at their house. So I could leave my, uh, my apartment complex uh, with the door not only unlocked, but open and not have to worry about things. Uh, I got a little bit more money and moved to a wider side of town. And I was scared every damn day. <laughs> yeah, well, I, um, I've only been robbed once. And that was when I was in a, a nice uh, white apartment complex. Right. Uh, <laughs> The, the the crappy black neighborhoods that I've lived in my adult life, I have never once been robbed. I've never once been uh, harassed by anybody. I've been assaulted by a loud jungle jam, but that's another story. I've never, <laughs> sorry, people who like that jungle jam. Uh, what, what's, <laughs> anyway, what's jungle jam? I'm... What's jungle jam? Jungle jam. Uh, that's what we white people uh, call rap music. Ah. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that's a new one for you. Uh, hippie hoppity jungle jams. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Come at me, bro. I'm, I'm right here. Skepticalseekers at gmail.com. Um, so, <laughs> at, uh, at any rate, yes, um, I can get lost in um, the memorances here, but I want to take one more step down history to get us to today. And I'll just say uh, two names, Rodney King, uh, George Floyd, and everything between there. Because these are the so, events that happened on so, camera. So, so I don't want to downplay anything with George Floyd, uh, but let's instead of George Floyd, let's do Richard Brooks. Uh, I'm not sure if you've been uh, keeping up with anything, but this is Sunday, so Friday in Atlanta. He was uh, murdered by a cop, shot in the back. Uh, The cop said that he was fleeing uh, after being suspected of, what was it, shoplifting. He was handcuffed, running away, and shot in the back in Atlanta on Friday. Yesterday, I spent uh, a good deal of the night uh, watching live streams of my friends in Atlanta as... Wendy's, one of the Wendy's that I used to go to because I used to live down there, uh, was burning to the ground. That happened yesterday. George, uh, again, I don't want to minimize anything that happened uh, with uh, George Floyd on Memorial Day, but, I mean, literally yesterday, or the day before yesterday, it's still happening. And I believe it did get... Brooks? Yeah. uh, yeah, And I, I believe it did get caught on film as well. Fortunately, uh, the mayor has fired the uh, cop who was involved, the cops who were involved with that. But, fired. but uh, that's it so far. Again, it's only been a couple yeah, days. That's uh, what more do you want him to do? I mean, he lost his job. He'll have to now fill out an application and get another job. No, he, he won't even have to fill out the application. There, there are other police departments that are already scouting him. So, uh, yes, um, Rashad Brooks and who, any other fool that gets himself shot while handcuffed in police custody at the time that we're talking right now, uh, because it's probably happening right now. The only thing, uh, the only point that I'm making with, uh, and I just started Rodney King because that's the first one I remember. Hmm. We can go Brooks back Day. to Emmett Till. These, these, or... are the ones, <laughs> these are the ones we have video for. Right. It's, it's the video. This is... It's, it's so, the racism and the unfairness, the injustice at the hands of police is so institutionalized that they don't even care if the cameras are rolling anymore. Now, you would think that, you know, before the cameras, they're, they're like, okay, yeah, we're safe. But when, when they realized that everybody had a cell phone, that, that they would change their behavior if the cameras were rolling. Well, no, no, you wouldn't think that if you knew the history of it more. Uh, Because remember back in the 50s and 60s, and during the lynch, uh, the the Summer of Love, love that title for Bloody Summer. But uh, during those those lynchings, cops were seen and photographed. They would, like, take essentially selfies or ushies next to lynched black people and send them around as postcards. 
I mean, it's, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a secret that they were killing people, uh, that they were proud of it. It's always been the case. Right, the, but during the, that time, I, this, is, this is actually the weakest comeback that I'm <laughs> will make all year. During that time, it was acceptable. <laughs> you know, it was more acceptable. It was, uh, I, it was expected. I, I, we are I, supposed to be beyond that. <laughs> I, I would posit that uh, in those instances like Rodney King and uh, Philando Castile and Amadou Diallo, there was a video for Amadou Diallo, but in those uh, instances where there is a video, like a video of the murder, and the pigs still got off, right, <laughs> I mean, right. nothing's that's changed. The, that's the outrage that that I'm that I'm stirring right at the moment. It's it, so we have the video. They they still got off, but it's it's not even just that. Oh, phew, got off. It's they are so com- comfortable that that the law uh, is is such. Forget the law that qualified that the situation is such that they are comfortable doing it, and they don't even have to worry about whether they're going to get off. And so, you know, it's it's great to see when they're convicted from time to time, but they have been doing this for so long in front of the camera, practically posing, and without fear what, of, of reprisal. Which is why, bringing it back to the beginning there, burn it all down. The, yes. The this defund is, and abolish police stations, uh, police, police departments. Hell, there is um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but there is a like police training camp where essentially they uh, they teach cops how to beat shooting rats. That's uh, fairly official. Uh, I saw it on um, uh, this week tonight with John Oliver. Did it their last their last episode on police goes into it a bit a bit more. Uh, Behind the Bastards had a couple podcast episodes on it, uh, but there are. There, there, there are literally courses that cops can take on how to beat the beat the rap when you shoot someone, when you kill someone. I'm yeah, isn't, isn't it a shame that we've got to learn our history and current civics from a smarmy Brit? Well, I mean, is, <laughs> there, is there really any other type of Brit? <laughs> I'm sorry, Matthew Taylor. Matthew is uh, one of my. Uh, uh, co-host, uh, frequent co-host on uh, <laughs> Skeptics and Seekers. He was on that uh, yeah, race the, podcast we did. Yeah, uh, the one who doesn't like to be called Matt. <laughs> yeah, he does not like to be called Matt, and I do it all the time. I don't know why. I'm a mean man. I, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Matt. Um, yeah, so we, I mean, honestly, I, I imagine the numbers in the millions of people who are you know, learning things about the system and about history from John Oliver. This is a failure of our education system because we just don't teach this history. The very cursory, shallow skim of history that we just went through uh, I, 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 just I, now. I, I can't. I can't agree with that. I can't agree that it's a failure of the educational system because the educational system is designed to push people into working for other people, push people into working a nine to five factory job uh, that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> That's what it was designed to do. 
uh, with the bells, with the periods, with how it's, everything, how it's structured, designed to push people into working. The yes. educational so, system yes. is doing The fact that we don't know it means the education system is working the way it's supposed to be. Right. I just say that the way it's supposed to work is a failure. Yeah. You know, we, we should, I mean, ask yourself, how, how are people supposed to learn about this? I mean, people listening to this podcast are thinking, man, it's going on. We haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even uh, talked about anything that would remotely be considered academic right now. This is, it is, the history is so deep. Uh, and it is, and it is well recorded. I mean, we have records of everything. Uh, and yet people don't know any of it. And so when they hear us say something like, let it burn, I, I'm just trying to give them a little bit of context uh, uh, here. And I just hope that it's enough to spark you to go to a library and run a book because it's it's bad. And, and people, we have been crying out for 150 years. You should have heard us enough by now to be curious enough about what we're talking about to, to go read a book, you know, try to figure it out. It's, it's too late in the game to cry ignorance and not 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 even i mean not even necessarily going to a library um get on audible they don't have a lot of uh books on black history from people who were actually there (laughs) um but they have enough to to get you pointed in the right direction black against empire by uh, joshua bloom uh, is is a good one. It's about the Panthers essentially, but it cover it touches on absolutely everything that we just did and what the Panthers were doing about it in the '60s. I mean, it's nothing new. So burn it down. I, I also want to see if I can create an analogy that might help someone at least understand why a person might think that. Imagine if this society was built on the backs not not of black people, but let's say that there were some scientific. Um, breakthrough and you know 100 200 years 200 years ago and um we were able to give the people of this society a good life today because it was originally started by killing all jews and draining their blood and we could make a special potion from their blood and we just did that for a long time and now we can uh, sit back and enjoy the benefits uh, of that how how did you feel about that i mean so, this this society would never be a place where they could call home and feel comfortable for for them this was built on an atrocity so, and if you want to get rid of the last vestiges of that atrocity you have to start over I, I, there's, there's no way to do it man I, I like i like your analogy um the the sci-fi post-apocalyptic uh, nerd in me well, would probably read that book, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I write bad fiction. <laughs> I, I have a I have a history of writing bad fiction. <laughs> the, uh, now, now you know why I've never uh, managed to publish a fiction book. I'm a nonfiction writer. So. <laughs> the, the the analogy that I've used with my uh, pink friends uh, when when we get into it is is this. So imagine you are making a cake from scratch. You've got all, using a, your uh, recipe that you just came up with, you look, everything looks like it's going to be awesome. 
you put in your milk, your eggs, blah, blah, blah. You put in the oven. Everything is going great. But then all of a sudden, somebody comes through and sees the milk, drinks some of it, and you, and re, you realize that the milk is spoiled. The cake is already made. It's, you're, you're ready to put the icing on it. Are you going to try and take out the milk and fix it? Or are you going to throw it away or start over again? You know? Okay, Just... I like that analogy. <laughs> it works, but there's, not, there's no sci-fi angle in there. Um, <laughs> I got to work <laughs> I'll leave that to you. <laughs> so yes uh we can we can uh, analogize all day the the point being uh, i think that most people even the good white people would un- understand those analogies but for some reason they don't understand the actual real dystopic history that that took place uh, and that's taking place not, right not, now. Not, they, they not, not for some reason. Of our experience. Not, not for ahead. some reason. Sorry. It makes them the bad guy. Everybody's the hero in their own story. And if they if they did what you just suggested, it would make either them or their their tribe, their um their their family members the bad guy. And nobody wants to be the bad guy. Well right. Well, this is why they can't see uh, systemic racism. Yeah, they will. They will be glad to march with you and say, "Oh yeah, death of George Floyd. That was awful." And they will. They will try to make George Floyd the issue. That's the poster child. And we can all say that that was bad. And phew, okay, we did our marches. We uh, got those uh, guys arrested, and we we solved racism. <laughs> That's this is um, what protests do for white people. They give, uh, and when I say, well, I just mean some white people. I know that some of y'all be crazy, so the rest of us. But, uh, but um, that, that this is this is what it does for them. It gives them cover and it allows them to say, okay, we, we settled that. <laughs> and so, I, but you know, we are we are saying no. This is not about this is not about George Floyd. We've been we've been banging this drum for a long time, and we I think you are right. We're never going to get the kind of justice that we're calling for in this system, especially playing by the rules of this system. Well, that's, that's just it. This, this system has a has the fail-safe, then uh, that was kind of built into it in the, uh, uh, in the Declaration of Independence. When your current system of government doesn't uh, work for you, uh, you have the uh, right to abolish it and start something else. I mean, that's why right. that, that's why we're yeah, Americans you, and not British right now. You can get enough people to agree with you, right? So right. here's a, let's 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 wind it down a little bit, and I want to um, I want to get some advice from you. I need to ask you a question because <laughs> right. um, I I've been pondering this myself for the last few days, weeks, years. I have an answer. Uh, as I say, I've walked in the world of white people for. Uh, most of my life. And I care about white people. When I have a conversation like this, and it's only been recently that I've been able to have a conversation like this in public on a mic where people can hear me. Because I'm, I'm worried about what the white people will think of me when they see uh, me behaving this way. Uh, they they will be so disappointed. Um, <laughs> but you were our Negro. <laughs> you were one of the good ones. <laughs> 
So my question uh, for you is actually this, because I do, I do feel for the white people who are feel, hearing this and feeling aggrieved, and I probably shouldn't, but I do. Do we communicate to them that this is systemic and institutional and deeply painful when they simply can't see it that way, when they when they refuse to think of it as institutional. What what can we say? Because I'm having a hard time just maintaining good relationships at this point with people who say, yeah, well, I don't see it. Then don't maintain those uh, 20 relationships. years ago, I could do it. But I, today, I'm just, what are you what are you looking at that I'm not? And I just, I feel like I'm going to have a hard time maintaining some of those white friendships. How do you, how do you communicate to people what we're talking about? Well, just as bluntly as we've been talking here, burn it all down. I'm done trying to convince you that, uh, convince Pink's that things should change and that, that my, that, that Black Lives Matter and that trans lives matter and that, uh, that, that the system is, is, it's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's designed to do, but that the system is not good anymore. We've been trying, we've been having these conversations since the, uh, uh, since the uh, first enslaved African came over on the good ship Jesus screaming, no, please stop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there's nothing that you can do for willful and for willful ignorance. The 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 um, the resources are out there and are being and ha- have been out there and have been um, flashing in their faces like like alarm bells forever that they don't want to see it. You know what? Fine. I'm, I'm not your Negro. <laughs> it, it, I don't care that we work together or that we've grown up together. You know what? Bye. I, I don't need you. You don't want to listen. If after however many years we've been together uh, in whatever capacity, you don't see the need or desire to listen to me when I speak, fuck you. Bye. I, I don't have that conversation. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm getting there rapidly. To go all the way there would dismantle my world for a second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be more devastating this time. I did it once when I left the church. Right. Um, Walking, walking away from Christianity and becoming uh, an out atheist uh, is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I lost uh, the community that made up my life uh, doing it. I don't know that I can do it again. But well, yeah. I tell you, I'll tell you what else I can't do. I'm done begging. I'm done on my knees begging for small concessions. Martin Luther King can raise from the dead and go fuck himself. Uh, I'm not interested in his um, type of concessions uh, anymore. I'm not interested in crawling on my knees and begging and then cheering when they take down the statue of a man who spent his life trying to keep my people enslaved. This is this is what we cheer now. This is this is victory for us in 2020. I can't do that anymore. Uh, I can't pretend to to be even happy or moved by those kinds of small steps anymore. Uh, it, and for the, the people who just don't understand, who don't get it, you know, I, I spent years um, as a Christian teaching this. You know, 
had a, a curricula. I did a, I, I made a small dent in a small corner mm-hmm. of, the, of my world. But I spent time doing that. And as an atheist, I uh, spent time as a uh, community um, servant. You know, I did my speeches and my rallies and uh, made made a difference in the things that we were trying to do. And I and I did that. And even after that, I spent my time cultivating more friends and being patient. They just they just don't know any better. And I've cultivated those relationships. And I'm just tired of the whole thing now. And I don't want to lose those relationships. But I don't want to spend any more time. I've, I've done my teaching. It's like rallying and speak walls. I'm tired of doing I've spent uh, uh, doing that. And for that, uh, I have seen in my lifetime, I've talked about one instance, but I've actually seen in my lifetime twice this end of a police special for no good reason. Um, that's been my, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I'm legally blind, but I even read print books when the book is interesting enough uh, and compelling enough because I love knowledge. I uh, am a decent uh, human being. I don't litter. I pick up litter when I see it. I have brought strangers into my home uh, to uh, uh, because they were homeless and they needed help, and I didn't give them a quarter. I gave them a room. I have done these things, and for that, I have had my life flash before my eyes with white police ready to shoot me for no good reason. That's my reward. I'm done begging for crumbs on my community, but I'm done eating you and I need you to hear me enough and care enough to at least look into it because I'm not crazy. There's something there. Um, Find it. It's just it's not my job to to make you learn. So um, that's all I got, man. What do you What do you got? What, do you, got you. What, what do you want in with? There, there, there is a community out there. Are communities rather, uh, depending on depending on uh, what you what you uh, need at the time. Out there, we are safe landing spaces for when you get out of the ones that uh, that are toxic to you. Um, again, the Angry Black Rant, um, Angry Black Rant discussion group on Facebook is where I spend most of my days. Um, it's one such community. Black non-believers uh, is another one. We're we're there for you because we we have the same and similar experiences. Whether you're a house nigga or not, <laughs> you, yeah, like like Jay Z said, at the end of the day, you're still a nigga. We, we got you, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, um, well, you know, my my part of the um, African American culture, we were the lucky ones in one way, but we were the unlucky ones in another way because we we were the ones who simply didn't know what was going on uh, with the rest of the clan, but. But the ones in the field saw the whole picture. Right. And, and like you said, that once you didn't know, but now you do. Uh, going back to that uh, background that both of us share, once you were blind, but now the scales have fallen off your eyes. <laughs> you know? You can, no better, do better. When you were uh, 
a, a child. You spoke as a child when you're <laughs> down at your man. <laughs> Do man things. <laughs> you, you can I, change. Uh, I, love, I love you, brother, but if you quote the Bible to me one more time, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> Wait, let me turn the other cheek. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Now it's all. <laughs> But um, but yeah, this this is this is a, a good discussion, and and again, I just started listening to uh, both Secular Soup and Seekers and Skeptics and Seekers. Ah, <laughs> so I'm not sure the the format how they normally go, but this type of conversation is pretty much what Angry Black Rant is about. It started with with people who had to work both sides of the uh, community, uh, both black and white, and they just needed a place to scream, you know, to a place to, to come where people could would, would, would acknowledge them and acknowledge that, okay, I'm not crazy. There are other people out there that, that feel this way. And, and, just rela- and just breathe a little bit, you know? Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit like um, the... Um atheist communities there there's a kind of a welcome to the atheist community kind of thing when a person leaves the church and they they feel completely adrift and they have to deconstruct their story and there are a lot of podcasts that are um, that are you know designed to help people deconstruct and um, you know find find new uh, communities as it were and uh, I feel a little bit like that um, here, um, I just I have to I have to have some moments of honesty here and talk about who I am and how I really feel, and uh, that is not intended to alienate any of my uh, friends, especially uh, lifelong friends that I've had. But you have to know, uh, you know, if you're going to be my friend, you have to know who I am. Right. And and this is. Uh, who I am. Uh, I'm not an angry black ranter, although I can be sometimes. <laughs> so, Don't sell yourself I, short. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I do. I do want to visit your community, though, and um, see that and be a part of that because that's a part of my history and my people, and um, I, I need to own that and embrace that, and. Um, I, I appreciate you. Let me let me take uh, two minutes to say one thing that has nothing to do with this. I need to talk to I need to talk to black people here, and I also need to talk to the white people, the, the three white people that are left listening to this uh, <laughs> right now. And the FBI, they're, uh, they're they're on this call too. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the FBI. Uh, I want to uh, just make a pitch here. Uh, because this is a promise that I made to my group about uh, a book called Surviving Corona. It is uh, the latest book that I have co-wrote with uh, eight other people. Uh, so outside of the race issue, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, you've heard of the coronavirus, right? Yeah, seems um, familiar, yeah. <laughs> just checking, yeah. Um, that used to be the news. Thank goodness we got that out of the headlines. Here's the... <laughs> Here's the thing. I live in New Jersey. I work when I worked in New York. I am still in Plague Central, and uh, the curve has been flattened 
thank goodness. But it hasn't been uh, eliminated. You know, we still get anywhere from 100 to 1,000 new cases a day. You know, it depends on the day. People still still dying uh, from this stuff. And it's not just the primary effects of people catching the disease and dying. It's the secondary effects. I really wanted to talk about the secondary effects with the race, regarding the race issue today with you, John, and I, the time has just slipped away. Maybe maybe we'll just add an addendum and it can be edited mm-hmm. back in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this won't but, be our uh, last conversation, so don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. So um, the thing is, the coronavirus is a, is a bastard. And I have lived most of the last two or three months in fear of uh, other people, especially other black people, because you know what? Black people have been uh, uh, adversely affected by this uh, at a at a uneven rate. Uh, and we can talk about why that is, but you know, the coronavirus, which knows no race, has been wiping our people out as if it were designed to do that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it was. I, I don't believe any such nonsense. But there are reasons uh, why we have been affected so badly by it. And so we still are. And and even if you survive the disease, uh, there will be secondary and uh, tertiary impacts uh, on your life. If you don't survive the disease and you are the one breadwinner in the family, there are families now that are just devastated. And it's not like they can go out and get a job right now and work because in places like New Jersey, New York, you're not going out and getting a job. And if you are, you're going out and getting a low-level job that puts you in a lot of danger. Uh, We call them essential workers these days, but they are really expendable workers. Um, This is is a problem, uh, folks, but it's not a black problem, ultimately. It's not a white problem. It's just a human problem. And I was hoping that this would be one of those things that helped bring us together. So myself as an atheist and three other uh, atheists uh, and four Christians, uh, we got together and uh, we decided to write Surviving Corona, Believers and Non-Believers Examine Their Worldview During This Time of Crisis. And um, we talk openly about our particular worldview and why we think it's superior than the other, but moreover, what some of the problems are, where some of the holes are in our worldview and how it's actually been holding up. There's some surprising things. We have um, at least two uh, sitting uh, theological professors. Uh, we have uh, broadcasters, uh, inter- in, uh, international uh, broadcasters of international acclaim. We've got writers, former preachers, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good list of people who have, uh, individual essays, uh, that they've included in this. This book is $2 and 99 cents. That's enough money. So, uh, uh, so little that even a black person can afford it. What I want you to do is I want you to buy the book because all of that money, uh, that's collected goes to the international red cross for uh, Corona relief and who knows, uh, maybe uh, even some of the people who find themselves beat up and maimed by police will get some of that money because you know what the Red Cross does? The Red Cross helps people who need help. I used to work for the Red Cross once upon a time. Uh, and there are a few organizations that are better at knowing uh, surgically where the need is and getting it there uh, quickly and efficiently. And so the whole thing goes there. 
I'm not making any money off this, so you don't have to worry about supporting a, an asshole like me if you don't like me. This is all going to the International Red Cross. So buy the book for $2.99, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Uh, you can just click on that first tab. It says Surviving Corona. What I want you to do when you're there, not only to buy the book, but I want you to leave a donation. This big Red Cross uh, emblem there, just click on it, and then donate. Five, ten, fifty. Uh, make it 50. You know why? Because you've got it and because we need it. So do it. Make a donation. Uh, if you prefer the Kindle version, you can go to Amazon Kindle. Just type in Surviving Corona. It's the first thing that will come up. So we need your help. We need your help. We don't need your prayers. <laughs> we don't need your thoughts. Uh, we don't need you to rally uh, and march with us side by side. We need you to put money in the plate starting at two ninety nine and work your way up. And I thank you so much for your support. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, send, send me a link to the uh, book and all. And of course, I'll buy it, but I'll put it uh, on my show notes for uh, my cast and put it in my group as well. So, uh, yeah, all, all for supporting. Uh, Excellent. And it seems like so, it seems like it'd be an interesting... Uh, book for christians for uh atheists <laughs> yeah, actually five christians my original my original list was six christians and three atheists three atheists mm. uh i wanted there to be way more christians than atheists and these are all uh, fairly well-known uh christians and the reason i wanted it that way was because christians um I don't want to slag on Christians after asking for support. Christians tend not to buy and read opposition material. So they don't want to be seen supporting atheists. So if there are atheists in it, they won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But I I thought by stacking the deck, I might (laughs) get get them to look. And also, all of the Christians are fairly big names. You know, we've got uh, Justin Brierley and Randall uh, Riles from Thomas Sword and some uh, folks like that. There are no big name atheists on that list. I'm the closest thing to a name mm-hmm. <laughs> on that on that list, and I'm the only black person in the program. However, I wrote about half of it. <laughs> this is my project, and uh, limits be damned. So yeah, I I wanted to stack the deck in that way, but it uh, it ended up being uh, five Christians and four atheists as it uh, turned out. Still a lot of Christians, people. Uh, so you feel good about it. Uh, and none of the money is helping atheists. We atheists will, if, if we were starving before the book, we'll starve after. So uh, don't you worry about that. Uh, is it okay, uh, even though we have a natural end to this discussion, if I just tack on a few words about secondary effects? And uh, Amy, uh, I'm sorry to make your editing job uh, harder, <laughs> but but not really. So, just a quick word, uh, because a lot of there's there's an aspect of the conversation that we've had that gets lost, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about uh, in a conversation. So I just wanted to put it out there uh, for the now two white people still listening uh, <laughs> at this point. It is not just the effect. Uh, of slavery that's the problem okay you can you can do slavery today you could you could 
uh, make slavery legal for a day and then make it illegal again, you have not ended the problem of slavery that you created by making it illegal today. Because being enslaved is just the primary effect. What I want to get you to think about more deeply are the secondary and tertiary effects. And so I'll, I'll use another parable, uh, another analogy, and I'll see if I can make this one a little bit more successful. If, uh, if I have a job interview and I'm all dressed up in my suit and I get assaulted by a bully and they punch me in the face and then they run off uh, and leave and maybe they um, come back and apologize later. You know, they, they had a moment of rage and they're really sorry. Okay, sir, I forgive you. Is it over? No, it's not over. Because what happened is I got punched in the face, man. That hurts. <laughs> that hurts real bad. And I probably got a black eye. Yeah, black people can get black eyes. And I probably got a swollen uh, uh, jaw here in the, in the process. Uh, yeah, I don't know how my jaw got swollen. I got punched in the eye. Don't worry about it. Just, just work with me on this analogy, all right? Uh, these are some other things that happen as a result of that. And even though uh, the person has apologized, and to the best of my ability, I've forgiven them, by the time I get to the job interview, do you know what happens? I am whinging in pain because getting punched in the face hurts, man. Uh, so I'm in pain. I'm distracted. My eye uh, uh, and cheek makes it look like I've been in a brawl. My, my tie is probably a little must, and I probably smell bad at this point. All because someone punched me in the face. Now the punch is over. They've apologized. But you know what's going to happen at that interview? I'm not going to get the job. I am not going to get the job that I needed to earn money to support my family. These are secondary effects of what you did. And those effects are like gifts that keep on giving. They're secondary and tertiary effects all the way down. And so even if we stopped at slavery or Jim Crow, the secondary and tertiary effects of that on an entire race of people cannot be dismissed and it does not go away in a few generations you can't just say sorry and say the tables reset and everything's okay it's not okay and it's not gonna get okay uh-huh. okay <laughs> which is why we burn it all down <laughs> thanks uh thanks john uh, no worries, i'll uh i'll put this recording on now <laughs> SNS, uh, so that my audience will get to know you. Uh, and in that, tell us um, uh, how they how they come to get to know you. Where do they reach you? Uh, so, right now, it's just um, John Livingston. I'm fairly open on Facebook. Angry Black, pretty much anything that has Angry Black Rant uh, on it will get to me and and the Angry Black Rant crew. But yeah, that's that's where I, that's where I live. I have Twitter and Instagram, but I don't do anything on them. I let other people do it, and I'll, I'll re-forward it or repost it or what have you. But I don't. Fa- Facebook is pretty much where I live. And, yeah, the Angry Black Man podcast. And, again, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can uh, get to know the site there, uh, catch up on the podcast. Uh, write me directly at skepticsandseekers.gmail.com. Uh, sorry, at gmail.com. And, um uh, I see all of the email and I respond to every one of them so far. 
which lets you know that I don't have a million listeners yet because <laughs> I can still respond to them. <laughs> so thanks so much and um, good talk. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you, there, David. Stay angry. And I'm going to stay bliggity, bliggity, bliggity black as fuck. And I want all of y'all to keep ranting. Baby, This is someone who doesn't quite believe that there is somebody out there, some God out there. Oh, then to me, you're an idiot. (laughs)